Welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. On this podcast, we dig into some of the fantastic and numerous games that Warlord Games puts out for us to enjoy. Now, it's been a while since we've had an episode, but not too long ago, we spoke to tonight's guest uh, when a game was about to come out, a game that has done very well for Warlord, so well, in fact, that the core game has sold out and is the process of being reprinted and re-put uh, together now for a second printing. And in the meantime, in a very short period of time, we are going to see full hardback rules really expand out what we saw in that box. Of course, I'm talking about Victory at Sea. And of course, my guest is Matthew Sprange. Matt, how are you doing today? Not bad at all. Thank you for having me. Matt, you got to be happy when the game that you write sells out i mean that that's a huge compliment right people love it oh always yes very good <laughs> i mean it's it's and i have a copy of this game myself i don't always have a copy of every warlord game but this is a great box i i enjoyed i opened it up the detail in the models is fantastic the rules read very cleanly uh, it looks like an absolutely fantastic game to play uh, sadly, due to COVID, I've not actually had a chance to play it with another human being yet, but having played it, just pushing some models around the table, uh, it really feels uh, like proper naval combat, but in a nice streamlined manner that's really fun to play on the tabletop. I think you've really hit the nail on the head this time, man. Congratulations. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Well, uh, I enjoy it. Well, let's talk about what is coming out. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we are going to see the hardback copy of this game. Um, and what you got in the original box was sort of a streamlined version of the rules. Now, it isn't just a get you by set of rules. It is a full set of rules. And there are, um, you know, all of the, there's, in fact, you get a lot of ship profiles in the box on the cards and lots of different variations. There's some great scenarios. Uh, if you want to hear all about that box, look back at the prior episode for Victory at Seas for the Warlord Games podcast, and we talk all about it. But the book, wow, the hardback version of this book really does bulk out what you get in that box. Not only do you have the fleets of ships that, you know, of course you got in the original core game, now you have all sorts of additional rules um, there's additional rules for uh, sh coastline emplacements, shoreline. You have submarines, which we're going to get into in a minute because I can't wait to talk about those. We have MBT combat uh, and 50 pages of scenarios. I think you guys have really gone to town to give people who love this game tons to go off of. And that doesn't even include... Uh, there's. It actually took me a while to figure out where the rules started because you get something like 36 pages of detailed history overview that really helps put you in the scene for all the theaters of World War II on the ocean. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, where do you go as the author to even start a project like this? Because it's a massive <laughs> undertaking. Well, that yeah, that was kind of the uh, the point. The um, what we were trying to do was um, release a complete book. So um, 
uh, did say that uh, the original aim was to feature everything that ever floated in uh, World War Two. Now, mm-hmm. as it turns out, there's uh, an awful lot and even uh, a book that big can't uh, fit it all. But we wanted to provide the complete World War Two experience um, uh, to not have to rely on um, uh, countless supplements um, to basically make it a one stop shop for everything that happened at sea during the war. That that was the um, design brief, uh, if you like. Yeah. Now, let's be clear. Let's talk about how this is different from some of Warlord's other games. Um, Talk to us about the scale of this game and when you are playing a quote-unquote regular size game. um, How how many ships are we talking? And we are talking about typically um is it a three by three table is it can you bulk out to larger tables talk to us about the gaming experience when you are playing victory at sea for those who have not heard the prior episode well we try um tried to create something that um scaled up and down um without too many limits so um, one of the um, first battles in the book is uh, Battle of the River Plate, which um, just has uh, four cruisers. Um, but you can uh, scale up to uh, right to the big battles. You can play on a three by three. Um, I think we uh, assume uh, six by four um, for uh, most of the uh, mission maps. Mm-hmm. Um, and we made sure it was um, scale independent as well. That is so cool. Yeah, I love that you can play it at a bunch of different scales. And just to be clear, for those who are thinking scale in the other way, it is one eighteen hundredth scale. So it is significantly smaller ships than Cruel Seas, for example, which is more of a, a PT boat combat game. Um, the ships are much larger on the table. With this, we're talking almost fleets of ships, right? Indeed, but um, we did go for a slightly larger size. Uh, traditionally, World War Two ten, tended to be centered around um, one three thousand or one six thousand. Right. Um, but while um, pure, you've got to be careful how I say this, uh, while purists um, might find that more agreeable in terms of um, uh, how things look with regard to ranges. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were uh, a satellite or a high-flying aircraft, this is what it would look like if you looked downwards. Um, we still wanted to acknowledge the fact that this is a miniatures game. The models on the table are more than just playing pieces. Right. Um, and once you go to the uh, 1800 scale, you can start seeing the differences, not just between different classes, but between individual ships from cruisers upwards. So you don't just get, um, say, uh, a Leander class. You can get uh, Ajax and Achilles on the table as well and see the difference. Um, So you don't need labels or anything. Um, Once you know your ships, you can recognize individual vessels. Yeah, and I think that Warlord's resin, there was a lot of questions after the last episode of, are the ships plastic? Are they resin? Are they metal? These are resin ships. And because Warlord really has spent so long working on having really sharp, clean lines and corners on their resin models when you know creating their bolt action range for example i think that has that resin technology's really come into its own with these ships because having pulled these out and assembled them myself you really can tell those differences and the the detail is there 
I'm a, I'm a painter. I'm a hobbyist. I want the detail that I can bring out with my paintbrush. And it is really nice to have there. Uh, again, these ships are also on almost miniature scenic bases that represent the ocean. So again, it gives you as the modeler plenty of opportunity to, uh, you know, to paint the ocean around these ships. And it really almost sets these ships up to be tiny dioramas on the table that you then get to play with. Indeed. Well, that was, um, uh, I have to hold my hand up. That was uh, my little input um, on the models there. Um, because traditionally people made their own bases for their ships. Um, so it seemed a very obvious thing let's uh, let's do that for them plus if we do it then we can um uh put a uh, model the waves and wake lines on the um uh on the bases which makes them very simple to paint um yeah just base color maybe a wash and a bit of dry brushing you're done exactly and if you want to bust out the nice glasses and the fine detail brush there are plenty of opportunities for you to get a little crazy as well which is cool. I think because the models have the detail, it works both ways. Um, now, while we're talking scale, as you said, you know, if people are used to running a smaller scale naval battle, it is important to remember that there is a line of horizon in this game. Uh, ships are considered to be over the edge of the planet because our planet is, you know, a sphere at 30 inches, which means that even though you might be playing on you know, if you're playing a smaller game on a smaller board or on the properly advised four by six table, there's actually plenty of room for tactics where people are maneuvering to get in and out of people's line of sights because of the curve of the earth, right? Oh, indeed, yes. Um, we do have ships that uh, can throw shells over the horizon, but um, uh, we kept that as kind of like a, a special case. It can be done. It's in the advanced rules section, but um, only for very specific um, circumstances, like if uh, uh, you're shelling a port and you've got an observation craft in the area, for example. Um, you're, you're never hitting a, a moving ship at that range. Yeah, and I, but I do really like, for example, that if a ship is firing at its long range, if it's a larger ship, I mean, we talk about shells sort of reaching up and then coming back down. They don't just shoot in a straight line. They do arc and then come back before they hit the water. Uh, and because of that, if you're shooting larger guns at longer range, you're actually going to hit the tops of ships because your shells are going to be coming down, not just broadsiding them, which... I thought was a very nice touch and is, of course, very historical and is why some ships have armor on top. Indeed, yes. You've got a little um, arms race going on as you uh, uh, go through the uh, the years of the war. Nice. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the game system itself. So we did talk about this in the last episode, but I think we have had a lot of questions about how Victory at Sea plays. Um, basically... When you are playing this game, there is every every turn, there is an initiative uh, phase where both players roll to see who goes first. So you can't automatically assume you know who starts the next turn, which does leave you to make some hard decisions towards the end of your turn because you're not quite sure who's going to go next. Um, you move into the movement phase where each ship moves. Again, ships move. Each ship has its own movement value. Um, ships can move further or not as far, depending on you know their class, their engines. Um, but every two inches, they are allowed to make up to a 45-degree turn in general. Then we have the gunnery phase, where all the ships fire. And then the end phase, where things 
sort of get cleaned up before the next turn. How did you go about, I mean, a lot of Warlord games use chits out of a bag or order dice out of a bag. And a lot of other traditional game systems have the you-go-I system of, I'll move all my ships, I'll do all my shooting, and then my opponent will get a turn. This is very much ship by ship, move, 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 shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, what led you to develop that? And what lend itself to, uh, to World War II naval combat? Well, uh, big questions. Um, well, uh, to answer the first one, we wanted to reflect um, fleet combat. And while you can, um, uh, you can play this game where um, uh, sides are mostly uh, motor torpedo boats or um, a horde of destroyers, um, or one side is all um, aircraft, you know, Pearl Harbor or Toronto kind of uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. um, it centers on larger ships, um, cruisers and um, battleships. Uh, and you want to make each one feel um, uh, unique and powerful. Um, so you kind of got to bring the spotlight onto each individual vessel rather than... Um, uh, treating them as uh, one amorphous army. Um, so, uh, yes, as you say, with the, uh, the movement and the shooting, it is ship by ship. You want to give each one a little bit of uh, bit of its attention. Yeah. And I think you guys have really gone out of your way to give each ship their own identity. Can you talk to us a little bit about how ships and their profiles have an identity in the game, but then how that changes over time, because you guys really have gone out of your way to create uh, profiles for ships across the whole war. Yeah. Um, well, we start off with... Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, we start off with the uh, basic um, real-world specs of the, uh, the ship. It's mm -hmm. um, uh, displacement, war weapon, it carries armor thickness and what have you. And then we put it through a very um, long-winded um, set of formulas to derive game statistics from them. Um, we then um, play-tested them to uh, over and over again to uh, see if they did reflect what uh, the kind of things the ships did uh, in the in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and we have. Uh, we have a group of gentlemen I call the the ONB, the official naval boffins, who know, who've got more naval knowledge in their little fingers than um, uh, I'll I'll ever uh, I'll ever get. One, in, uh, they they all went through the uh, stats and made um, uh, corrections and tweaks here and there, <clears throat> but um, the real hero of the bunch is a gentleman called Richard Bax, who um, worked tirelessly. To, um, digging up multiple sources on all the fleets um, to uh, refine the stats on each and every every single vessel in that book. He went through uh, all the aircrafts and the motor torpedo boats. He then did a truly mad thing and worked out what each ship, um, uh, what refits each ship had at every point during the war. Um, and that all gets compiled onto the uh, the ship cards you would have uh, seen already. Unbelievable. Um, but I'm I might be very wrong in this. I don't know if that information has ever been collated before. Um, we 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 weren't working off anything. We were digging this up, or Mr. Bax was. 
uh, dinging up all himself. Um, that that was uh, a significant contribution. That is an unbelievable contribution. Um, just to give people an idea of what we're talking about, if we look at a particular class of ship, um, let's say the Nagato-class battleship uh, in the Japanese fleet, um, if you had that card in front of you, that would be sort of as the ship sailed from the, the docks the first time, then if you flip the card over on the back... In this game, every ship has its own card. It has profiles, and you track damage on it. It has all the information you need, which really cuts down on flipping the game. You don't have to go tearing through books. It's all in front of you, which is really handy. But when you flip the card over, there are different variants of that ship. So the ship might have better armor. It might have uh, slightly different weapon loadouts. As the war progressed and as technology improved or as, you know, as resources dwindled, whatever it was that caused that ship to change, you can run that ship with different loadouts over the over the, the span of the war. So in a way, it's like if you're playing if you're a bolt action player and you are playing um, using theater selectors and you can choose certain units. Um, rather than others that fit that particular conflict, it's almost as though you can then cater each unit to match that particular conflict on top of that, that the weapon loadouts change for what that unit had. It's an unbelievable amount of detail given the sheer number of ships that are included in this game. Yeah, he, he might actually be quite loopy by now. <laughs> unbelievable but of course every one of those profiles then has a point value that allows you to play balance games on top of that if you don't want to play one of the scenarios in the book that might have specific ships listed or specific classes but if you wanted to play just general battles in the sea um, what if scenarios for example that balanced um, that led to you know even conflicts so that one player wasn't feeling dis more disadvantaged or, than another it's it's a very clever system well matt let's talk a little bit about what's different between the box set of the rules and the book that we are talking mm -hmm. about the new hardback rule book the first thing that jumped out at me and one of the most cinematic parts of lots of World War II uh, slash naval combat movies since World War II, of course, is submersible combat or submarines as we now call them. Let's talk a little bit about how those play out in Victory at Seas because it's actually sort of a mini game within the game itself. You do lay out in the rules that you can use submersibles in regular games, but you don't recommend it. You recommend there are a specific set of scenarios to use um, submarines or submersibles in that line up with the way that they actually used in the war and are very cool. The, the, the hunter be hunted sort of scenarios. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the rules because there's tons of really great detail in here that d makes, uh, makes them really different from all the other ships in the game. Sure. Um, I mean, when we did the first um, edition of these rules way, way, way back when, we only kind of paid lip service to uh, submersibles and um, we just threw them in with the uh, the rest of the fleets. 
so you'd have your U-boats uh, um, fighting alongside your um, Admiral Hippers or what have you. But that just didn't happen during the war. Some uh, submersibles were um, uh, very much separate. Um, they were doing their own things because um, uh, extremely difficult to coordinate, coordinate them in uh, a fleet battle with um, proper surface ships. So, um, I mean, yeah, you can throw them into a regular game if you wish, but that's not really how we intended them. We wanted to focus more on the uh, the convoy attacks, um, uh, the cat and mouse, as you say, with um, uh, destroyers and um, uh, things like sneaking into uh, harbours and what have you, which is um, what the uh, scenarios we included for submersibles um, uh, were intended to cover. Um, as you say, yeah, we've... Um, we basically uh, divide the um, the table up into squares, and each submersible can be in one of those squares or not. So um, uh, the hunters are trying to um, uh, find the submersibles, and the submersibles are trying to manoeuvre to uh, reach their targets, hopefully without getting depth charges dropped on their heads. Right. And uh, submersibles operate at one of three levels on the tabletop. They can be at the surface, they can be submerged, which is basically periscope depth, or they can be running deep. And that allows them different abilities on the table, whether it's to more easily avoid detection or whether it's they can actually then attack. Um, they, and you do need to sort of think tactically about how you're going to be moving these uh, dependent on the scenario, right? That's indeed, yes. Um, I mean, if you get a, a submersible that's cornered by a, a destroyer or two, he's uh, he's going to, going to be going to the seabed very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, if a destroyer leaves itself vulnerable, it's going to be getting um, uh, a, to a torpedo up its bottom. Yeah, exactly. And I love that you can, speaking of how to deal with uh, submersibles, I love how there are depth charges in this game. Of course, there would be, again, very cinematic and, you know, submarines can try and get a, get away from these using crash dives and escaping. Of course, there's spotter aircraft. There's there's a lot of great detail to these rules that really allow you to play out these conflicts. Indeed. I mean, you mentioned cinematic. That's kind of like one of the um, uh, the aims of um, Victory at Sea as a whole. We want it to be um, uh, fun to play. We want you to, you know, picture in your head, uh, torpedoes going off, uh, massive explosions, shells flying through the air. Um, and really, it was the uh, the job of the ONB to kind of like rein back on those impulses um, and make sure everything was um, uh, more true to life. Um, you know, everyone, every now and again, I get an email from them saying, uh, no, this is actually how it works. Uh, make this fun and then then you'll be good to go. <laughs> Nice. Well, of course, you wouldn't have a submarine in World War II if you didn't have a special new order. Of course, in Victory at Sea, um, captains can issue orders to their ships that can help uh, get rid of critical damage effects on their ship, that can you know, help them maneuver better, can help them fire better. Uh, and of course, the submarine one uh, that is added in this book is to run silent, which, brilliant. Uh, very cinematic, right? Oh yes, uh, that's kind of where the um, uh, the whole area of those uh, special actions came from. Um, uh, if you imagine each one of those has uh, an exclamation mark at the end of it, and um, uh, players kind of meant to shout them as um, uh, as they use them, perhaps not shouting with a run silent, that that wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. 
Um, well, let's. So there's three scenarios for submarines. We have the ambush scenario. We have the harbor attack and the convoy. Um, if you really want to play out Greyhound on the tabletop, uh, but there's also rules in here. There's new traits for weapons. Um, there's cause, uh, kamikaze submarines uh, for the particular late war Japanese, um, the Kaiten. So. Again, lots of great detail here. Um, what nations can use uh, submersibles in this game? All of them. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, we've... Um, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of one that um, doesn't have submersibles. I mean, the, uh, the Marine Nationale has um, their um, Argonauts and Dianes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, think, I think all of them have uh, submersibles. Nice. Well, another new addition to the rules beyond submersibles are the motor torpedo boats. Of course, we know that these are favorites of uh, the owner of Warlord Games, John Stollard. We know he loves them. (laughs) So it is not surprising to see a whole section on these. Um, But given the scale of the game, we're not just talking about, you know, a great big base with one ship on it. With this, we're talking more little squadrons of ships, right? Yeah, we uh, divide them into sections. Um, basically, if you imagine two um, MTBs on, um, uh, I think it's something like a 25 mil base, um, it's, it's in, in that area, mm-hmm. um, working in pairs, and um, you can uh, buy a little uh, little horde of them. So how do they play out on the tabletop? I should versus... stop saying flawed, act- uh, f- um, horde, actually. It's um, uh, squadrons, flotillas, and so forth. <laughs> right, but how, so how would you? How does that then play out differently on the tabletop if you're using a squadron of those versus a group of larger ships? Or would you recommend a combination of both? Uh, well, we always intend them as. Um, excuse me. <coughs> we always intended them to be used uh, in combination, but um, um, as said earlier, we also made sure that if you wanted to um, uh, play a battle, um, say, in the Mediterranean, um, uh, Italian boats going after a a convoy. So one side is just motor torpedo boats. Uh, As with aircraft, we made sure you can do that. Um, To facilitate that, we made things easier. So whereas um, uh, ships um, move and shoot individually, you'll do all your motor torpedo boats at once. uh, they're obviously more agile than um, the larger ships, mm-hmm. so uh, they effectively don't have any um, uh, facing or um, direction of travel. It's right. um, kind of like uh, point and click uh, in their use, um, and you, you do them all at once. Now, that is a different mechanic from fighters, for example, which, of course, fly above the ocean. Those have a very different movement mechanic, right? Uh, aircraft, um, actually, they're, they're um, very, very similar. Um, again, you do all the aircraft at once. Right. Um, uh, they uh, haven't got any facing. They can go in any direction. Um, they're done in um, a slightly different phase to motor torpedo boats, but um, otherwise, um, uh, though the movement mechanics are, are really quite similar. It's, it's when you get to the, uh, the combat that um, things uh, begin to vary. Um, basically, um, despite one being on the water and one being in the air, we're talking about small, fast-moving uh, units right. um, that are uh, far more agile than the um, uh, the main focus, the big ships. So uh, they can get treated in a, in a similar way. 
It's nice, though, because um, though the focus of this game typically is the larger ships, uh, and there are some very big ships in this game, uh, it's great that the smaller units are in there as well. And even though you have ships like aircraft carriers, um, as we talked about last episode, you're not necessarily going to be having a ton of fighters taking off from said aircraft carrier during the game. It's more to represent uh, maybe something where... It might be a target that your opponent's trying to get rid of, as was often the case in naval combat in the Pacific. Indeed. Um, I mean, if uh, if I was being very purist about it, I'd say the, um, the in inverted commas, intended way of playing victory is, is through the um, historical scenarios. Um, but we made sure that um, uh, competitive play was um, catered for as, as well. And once you go into that area, things do have to uh, do, you do have to modify your expectations and um, what actually appears on the tabletop uh, because players are going to do what's most advantageous rather than um, uh, what might actually have really happened. Mm. Um, uh, and you've got to kind of approach that idea with, um, the capabilities of World War II um, ships in mind. So you do end up with something that feels right, even though it might never have happened. <laughs> right. um, so, uh, for example, in the, um, in the core Vic, um, War at Sea scenario, um, you can have a carrier on the table chucking out lots of fighters. But if you have made, made sure your fleet is um, uh, sufficiently prepared, you can keep that carrier further back off table uh, effectively and have it just throwing fighters uh, onto the, into, into the battle as and when it can. Yeah, which is typically how I've seen it on the tabletop. Uh, although, again, I haven't been able to play tons um, due to not seeing people. We have talked a little bit about c coastlines and shorelines in this game. Um, how do they now come into effect on the tabletop? Because I guess previously in the box, it was more open sea combat. Now there are emplacements and fortifications on land that ships can engage with and can be engaged with. Yes, um, this is a part I very much wanted to get into the uh, into this edition um, because the vast majority of battles will happen at sea, even if um, you see on um, uh, a chart um, uh, for a specific battle, all this took place near the island with the scale we're talking about. Um, if that island is effectively in the next room, um, you're still really close to it in naval terms, but um, it's not going to be a feature on the battlefield, right. uh, or on the tabletop rather. Um, but no, because um, obviously you've got um, uh, coastal invasions and um, uh, actions that took very close to the uh, coastline. Um, uh, it's the hunting ground for uh, the likes of motor torpedo boats, so that. Uh, led us into um, coastal craft, um, uh, landing craft, uh, coastal defences and the um, actual um, uh, coastal invasion rules where you can send, your fleet can be bombarding the coastline, um, you send your landing craft in and then you're moving um, infantry and um, uh, possibly armour into um, onto various uh, strategic locations like um, headquarters and airfields mm -hmm. uh, and what have you to actually um, uh, take objectives and you know capture the island. 
Exactly. And some of those islands are harder to capture than others, given that you've given players eight varieties of weapons going from light guns and six inch guns all the way up to 15 inch and 16 inch gun prof weapon profiles. So, so you have those and then you give us tons of examples from all the different conflicts uh, across all the theaters of what the weapons, if what the pro almost ship profiles of what some shoreline defenses might look like, not just individual guns. You're very specific about if you, for example, um, are looking at the Davis Shore, what batteries might look like there, or what Fort Drum batteries might look like. Indeed, yeah, we gave um, we gave some specific examples that you can uh, just slide right into your game, but um, also everything you need to build your own. Exactly. Um, you also have some great AA emplacement. So if you're a player, for example, that has uh, a lot of aircraft, all of a sudden your opponent might have anti-aircraft uh, capabilities from the shore that aren't necessarily on ships, which is a nice touch. Indeed. Uh, I mean, that was, um, again, one of the uh, uh, original design briefs for the game was that um, uh, you could have um, an all-aircraft fleet um, uh, and still on one side and still have it to be an enjoyable game. Mm -hmm. um, basically, we wanted to be able to, we wanted to make sure that we could play Pearl Harbor from start to finish mm -hmm. um, and it not being boring for one player. <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, so have you played any conflicts like that yourself? Um, how how does that play? Um, we've, yeah, I mean, we've got... Um, I think included in the book, I'm trying to remember the um, uh, the name of it. It's been a while since I worked on this. We put um, Pearl Harbor and um, uh, Taranto um, mm -hmm. uh, as historical scenarios into the book. And if you have a look at uh, Pearl Harbor in particular, um, we've been able to do it. So we haven't just um, uh, given one side lots of planes and um, say, you know, just go at it. There's a lot of variant rules and um, special things you can do during those games. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm just trying to think of a battle in the Mediterranean where we had the um, uh, Italian Air Force um, uh, intervene during engagement between uh, surface ships and the Royal Navy player at one point gets to use a third of the uh, Italian Air Force because they were attacking the wrong people in real life. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, well, maybe not if you're in that conflict. Um, I'm just looking at the Pearl Harbor scenario while we're talking, and just to look at the uh, the Imperial quote, air quote fleet uh, for the Japanese, um, it's just 12 flights, 10 flights, 7 flights, three, 5 flights of fighters, and then 2 flights, 19 flights, and 2 flights of fighters. And it's lots of different fighters, tons of them. Um, versus everything on the other side. And, and meanwhile, one flight of Curtis Warhawk fighters, one flight of uh, Dauntless dive bombers. Um, yeah, I, I think the Japanese have air, uh, air superiority in that one. Um, not that that's a surprise. <laughs> However, um, yeah, I would like to play that. That's one of the missions I'm keen to play out myself because I want to know if it's death by a thousand paper cuts or, um, you know, if... if if it works well for both sides. And I, I get the feeling having read the air anti-aircraft rule that it is. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd also encourage you to write into a warlord. I, I did work out that, um, uh, a battle map, um, 
uh, of uh, Pearl Harbor and Toronto, for that matter, will more or less fit on a six by four table. So I've been uh, trying to harangue uh, Mr. Sawyer and Mr. Salad to um, uh, do one of those uh, vinyl print maps for the uh, the entire naval base. That would be awesome. I would love to see something like that. Um, oh, but of course, if you start going down that road, given how many scenarios there are, um, there, there might be a couple of vinyl mats to make. I suppose Pearl Harbor's the iconic, though, isn't it? Uh, that's in Toronto, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Double-sided, sorted, right? <laughs> Look at us. We're working out the marketing. Um, yeah, I'm sure Mr. Sawyer's not going to like my saying that. Anyway, moving on. Um, one of this, that while you were talking about that, it actually took me time to find the Pearl Harbor mission uh, in this book because, as said before, there are 28 scenarios in this book there are 50 pages of scenarios um, now warlord has always done a great job of adding lots of historical scenarios to supplements to games that they make that allow you to you know to play out reasonable conflicts on the tabletop but i think this has to be a new record 28 that's outstanding. Clearly, you had to do a lot of research for this. How did you all go about creating that list? I mean, that's that's a pretty Herculean undertaking. Yeah, it could have got um, uh, a lot larger as well. I mean, we wanted to um, kind of tell the story of um, uh, the war at sea um, from start to finish. So you begin picking out the... Um, you start picking out the most famous battles, then you start going through um, uh, with more with uh, uh, interesting battles that might be less well known, but um, uh, be interesting to play out on the tabletop. Then the ONB kicks in with their wish list of um, uh, battles they want to include. We ended up with um, a list that took uh, something like three or four pages, um, uh, just one-liners. Um, um, doing the battle of uh, this, that, or, or, or the other, um, and from that point we had to obviously we had to cut it down mm. um, uh, into the uh, into the list that we got at the moment. Um, but uh, we kind of tied it into the background sections um, as well. We because we didn't just want to um, provide a rule book um, right. and say to players, uh, "Here you are, just uh, go off and do your own things." We wanted to get people interested, um, uh, excited, and passionate about what they were doing on the tabletop, so the uh, the ships become more than just playing pieces, but uh, so people can actually see what's um, can actually get invested with what's going on on the tabletop. Absolutely, and I think you give you've given them not only lots of context to play these games, but you've given them the toys to do it. Because as excited as I am about uh, you know, 50 pages of scenarios, I'm even more excited by 140 pages of fleets to pick from. It is a massive number of units uh, and profiles to dig through. It's a little intimidating to flip through the first time. But then the second you realize that it's, it's broken into each different uh, nation's fleet and there's very clear rules for making a fleet, it is actually really straightforward. Let's talk about some of the nations here. You have the Royal Navy, the U.S. Navy, the Marine Nationale, uh, that's the French. Um, we have the Kriegsmarine, Germany, uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy, and we have the Regio Mar 
Marino. Uh, uh, Reggio Marina. Marina. I, I might be mangled the yeah. I might mangle the uh, pronunciation on that. Uh, apologies to Italians. Yeah, there you go. And so you have Italians, but then in addition you have uh, civilian shipping as well. And I think that will tie in with some of those hunting scenarios that we talked about earlier, specifically around uh, submarines, where you have rules for ammunition ships, armed uh, merchant cruisers. You have cargo ships, oil tankers, seaplanes, seaplane tenders, tramp freighters, troop ships, victory class cargo ships. There's all kinds of different ships. And that's not even one of the nationalists. That's three pages out of the 140. I mean, clearly a lot of work has gone into this. Let's talk about what this book brings you, because oftentimes when we have a Warlord release, where they release a game and then there's more that comes out later, people say, well, I already have the box. I already have the rules. I already have ships. Why do I want this other book? Now, I, you know, if people don't want the scenarios, which I personally am a big fan of, or the additional rules, these profiles themselves, I think, really do make this book amazing value if you are already a victory at sea player can you talk to us a little bit about how the existing list that already may appear in the original box how the list of units drastically increases um with this book yeah well as i uh said right at the beginning the um the, the initial aim was to feature everything that ever floated in World War Two. Now, you just need to look at the uh, civilian list to see that probably wasn't um, uh, possible. Um, but in terms of the uh, the fighting ships, you're going to find um, the odd ship here and there um, that doesn't appear uh, in the book. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, but no, we, we really wanted to be as complete as we possibly could with this book. So um, if it floated and it fought, it's in there. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, what is your personal favorite? Because, I mean, each nation obviously has its own national rules, and each nation's ships sort of have their own identity, uh, dependent on the technology of those nations and how things have sort of shifted over the course of the war. What are some of your favorites personally to play or to see on the tabletop that you really think sort of match up with what really existed in World War II? Well, this was the really the whole reason for the um, the background sections that uh, we put into the book, not just from the um, historical perspective of the actual uh, battles, but in terms of the fleets, um, we got um, a section on the uh, the Washington Treaty um, that gives you guidelines on how um, uh, how why the types of ships that fought in World War Two were there. Um, it's because of the uh, the limitations that were put onto that uh, put into that treaty. And that all goes together to uh, get players invested in any fleet. Uh, they pick so they can get excited about it. We didn't just want to throw a bunch of, say, French ships on the table and say, yep, job done, that's the uh, the French. We wanted to give people a reason to want to play a French fleet, say. Um, so we, we do push the um, uh, the whole idea of um, uh, liberty and retaking the, um, uh, taking your country back with that. And once you apply that kind of thinking, honestly, I can get into any of the fleets. <laughs> Okay, well let's let's start with um, my home country uh, because you know America. Let's talk about the Americans. What makes the American fleet the Americans? 
Um, one of the defining uh, traits and um, American patriots, I'm going to like this one, um, is the um, use of uh, torpedoes, um, which uh, I think the actual quote in the book um, for the first few years of the war, American torpedoes were bloody awful. Yes. Um, and I do kind of um, I do like that rule because um, when you start thinking of um, global rules for each individual fleet that uh, helps define them, there's a tendency to look at what made um, this fleet super cool during um, uh, during the battles. What um, elements can we get players uh, excited about? Oh, I must have that because this can do something that no other fleet I face will be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, but to be honest, um, those kind of, um, let's call them negative rules, um, can go much further in giving a fleet character. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Americans are just, I knew that that was uh, one of the national rules, but I think the profiles for the U.S. fleet also balance that out. So American players won't feel terribly disadvantaged right off the bat um, if facing oh. someone else, right? No, no, they'll just get very frustrated whenever they launch a torpedo, which is, was exactly what we intended. <laughs> exactly, right. Um, well, let's talk. I did mention this earlier, and I think it's important to draw an underline under this uh, for those listening. One of the great things about this book is when you open it uh, and you go to these fleet sections, for example, I'm in the middle of the American section right now. I have the profile for the New Mexico-class battleship. It has all of the profiles that would be on the ship card that we talked about earlier, which come with the ships when you buy them. But you also have an overview of what you would see there with point values, with all the weapon profiles. Everything you'd need to play that ship is in the book, uh, is part of this profile. But then at the bottom of that, you would have the information that is often on the back of the card. So it, it really does give you at a glance, for example... If you're talking about the New Mexico-class battleship named the Idaho, in 1941, uh, for example, it increases its AA battery. In 1942, you add radar and change the AA battery to a particular to a different type of attack. Uh, 1943, you remove the light guns um, and you replace them with other things. 1945, again, advanced radar comes in. So. As the war progresses, you can actually track the progress of an individual ship. And you have rules there for the Idaho, the, the Mississippi, the New Mexico itself. Um, and those are all just New Mexico class. Now, if you wanted to get into some of the other ships, it feels as though there's <laughs> countless uh, refits for some of these ships. That You really do go through the history on these. You know, the Wyoming class has the Wyoming and the Arkansas. There's just a lot of great history that's worked in. And depending on what part of the war you're fighting in, you can take a ship that plays one way in one part of the war and will feel different in another part, which, you know, is you're not just dealing with generalized profiles. It's very specific, but it's a nice touch to a game that is in and of itself very cinematic and not incredibly complex to play, if that makes sense. Yeah, indeed. The um, I mean, one of the things you the leaps out at you is the progression of anti-aircraft uh, on ships. Um, right. I mean, particularly with the um, uh, the Royal Navy, 
um, uh, at the, right at the start of the war, you see there's um, uh, a cruiser might have a local one, maybe one tiny little dedicated uh, longer ranged uh, anti-aircraft battery. Uh, but then you go through the uh, the refits and um, uh, on the larger ships, uh, especially, you'll just see uh, the numbers really crank up on the anti-aircraft side of things. Exactly. Well, let's I, I could go into each nation individually here. And I know that a lot of people would like us to, but I don't think we have time to necessarily hit every nation. However, I know that people are, will be upset if we don't start talking about some of the new nations. Let's talk about Italy. What makes Italy, Italy on the tabletop and victory at sea? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Italy's brilliant. Um, two things, um, re- two things, really. Um, firstly, they have, uh, on a technical level, some absolutely fantastic ships. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, they didn't do super well uh, all the time, Um uh, in uh, real-life battles, but the potential was certainly there. Um, the Italian fleet had um, some uh, really crippling um, uh, crippling downsides uh, to it, stemming from um, uh, the leadership, and that came all the way from the top. Uh, the fact that they um, uh, didn't talk to their air force at all um, uh, compounded the issues. But... Um, from the from a player's point of view, um, you do have uh, arguably some of the uh, finest vessels that uh, sailed during the war to play with, um, and you you're doing it in um, uh, one of the more interesting, I dare say, exciting uh, theatres of the war uh, in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's uh, there's a good reason we. Um, uh, spent so long talking about, uh, for instance, Operation Pedestal in the uh, in the rule book. Right. Um, I mean, this, this is the kind of thing you just want to play on the table. Yeah, yeah, it's cool, and it's one of those things that, um, as the casual World War II, I, I, I don't know, fan is that the right word? Um, I, I'm much more a, a ground conflict rather than naval conflict. Uh, Pundit, I guess. I'm trying to think of the correct terminology here. Um, I'm a fan, I guess. But I was not aware of the quality of the Italian ships in the Navy until I started flipping through this game. And I just went, wow, that really turns my understanding of this on its head. And it, it was just a great bit of uh, knowledge to pick up. And really, the profiles for these ships do give the Italians a very uh, specific character on the tabletop, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Um and I'd say this was another reason we put the um, uh, the, uh, the the chapter on the Washington Treaty in, um, because the limitations imposed by the treaty powerfully affected um, uh, what ships were used and how they were used and how they were built. So um, we we got a little line in there that um, uh, talks about all the nations agreeing to the terms of the treaty. That's fine. Right now, we're, uh, every nation then goes about uh, trying to find ways around that treaty, um, basically trying to make their ships better while keeping to the letter of the law, if not the spirit. So um, the Americans are developing their new high-pressure boilers. The um, uh, British and the French start mucking around with uh, turret uh, configurations. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Italian fleet just flat out lied about their tonnage. They, they didn't even pretend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, 
uh, they weren't alone. There are a few nations fudging numbers along the way, but I think they did it oh, rather yeah. spectacularly. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about the French then, because you've just mentioned them. Um, what makes the French uh, distinct on the tabletop and victory at sea? Well, on the I say on the uh, one hand, you got the every nation was. Um, shall we say, fighting for its way of life in World War II. Um, but France, uh, in terms of the naval war, France especially was fighting for its uh, very survival. They had lost their um, lost their homeland. Uh, and the, uh, the Navy, the Free French, um, were fighting for something very powerful that, um, uh, as a player, you can perhaps uh, appreciate. Um, on the table, they do have... Um, uh, as I say, it's the uh, nature of France. They do have a very uh, French way of doing things, yes. which immediately becomes apparent when you look at um, uh, the way they approach their uh, submersibles and their larger battleships. Um, as I say, briefly mentioned um, terror configurations, the um, British uh, mucked around with the Nelson and the Rodney with the three turrets set up. Um, whereas the uh, the French took that one step further, uh, let's just have two turrets, but put as many guns as we possibly can in each one. <laughs> oh, um, I say that um, that does have a powerful effect on the tabletop because you can engage an enemy um, with the full weight of your firepower um, while keeping um, a slim profile. You're you're engaging them head on, whereas they have to turn to uh, present a broadside to you to do the same thing, um, which immediately lends itself to um, uh, new options on the tabletop. Basically, you might be throwing the same firepower at each other, but you're harder to hit, and they're much easier to hit. Well, Matthew, we have been talking for almost an hour now, and I, I know that we've we've crammed a, a ship load of, is that an, a boatload of information into this episode? <laughs> Um, well, let's talk, pun intended, let's talk a little bit about what's to come. I mean, clearly this book, as you said, sort of covers everything that floats both above, floating in the air, floating underneath the sea and on it. This book has a ton of content. What can Victory at Sea fans look forward to now that this is out? I mean, Clearly, there's a lot of models coming, and Warlord's been pumping them out in the meantime. What can we look forward to for this game system? Well, as you say, the um, uh, I think Warlord really have got their work cut out for them in terms of the models. Um, I forget exactly how many um, ships there are in the uh, in the rulebook, um, but we passed. Um, it's over a hundred 3D models to. Um, uh, Warlord to uh, kick them off on their um, uh, on their uh, model line, um, and that barely scratched the surface of uh, what's uh, what's in the book. And once you do do all the ships, you then have um, the, the MTBs, all the different aircraft, the submersible civilian ships, um, uh, and that's before you get into things like um, coastal defences and. Um, uh, representations for the infantry and armor using coastal invasions. Um, basically, I think we've given them enough to work on for the next four or five years at the very least. Exactly. Um, in, in, in terms of um, uh, rules releases, though, um, we I say we did design that rule book to be as complete as possible, but World War II is um, 
probably a couple of thousand pages uh, worth of rules mm -hmm. if you wanted to cover absolutely everything. Um, we'll be able to scratch up a few ships here and there from the main fleet lists um, that uh, didn't uh, go into the main rule book, although they will be the more uh, esoteric stuff. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've included some of the what if ships that didn't quite make it. Um, uh, into the uh, the core rulebook, so um, we covered an awful lot of bases uh, there. Um, historical, more historical battles would be uh, an obvious direction to go in, perhaps tying it to um, some sort of campaign system. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we, there are um, uh, new fleets we can add as well. We've already um, uh, written and begun playtesting um, the entire Russian fleet. Um, and there are certainly other areas we can um, look at as well. We've, in the rule book, we've got um, uh, a couple of uh, Dutch uh, ships mm -hmm. um, that tied into uh, one of the scenarios. That's obviously an area we can further explore as well. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's always uh, directions we can go in. Um, but I think people are going to be happy to run with what's in the rule book for a, a good long while to come. It really is a big rule book. <laughs> It is impressive. Uh, it's 280 pages, which uh, just makes it a big, fat tome that is filled with everything that you want when you want to play this game. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was very excited when I opened the box and I got to put together the models. And I was very excited reading the rules and pushing some ships around and having a great time. But man, when you open this book, it's like the universe opens out in a whole new other exciting manner as far as this game goes. It's really great. And uh, I don't often say this on this show, guys. And I know, I know I'm the host of the Warlord podcast. I know what it sounds like when I say this. But bear with me. This will be, the I think, the first time I've ever said this on this show. I highly recommend this book if you're a fan of Victory at Sea. It's got everything. It's awesome. It's so good. Oh, that's very good of you to say. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today, Matthew. I know that you have a busy schedule, um, but we at the Warlord cast always love to talk to you and to, to hear what you've been up to because, man, whenever you come on, you bring something special. <laughs> that's very nice of you to say. It's been fun. Thank you. No worries. And guys, thank you so much for listening uh, and for joining us. I know there was a little bit of a break uh, in the, between the last episode, but uh, there are uh, plenty more episodes coming for the Warlord Games official podcast. Uh, if you have feedback about this episode or ideas for future shows, it is a brand new year. Happy New Year, everyone. We are always looking for new, exciting topics to talk about on the show, people to talk to, uh, or games to talk about. If you would like to contact me. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, you can reach me through my other podcast Facebook page. If you go to Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, um, Cast Dice Podcast, it's on Facebook. If you search it up, if you message that page, uh, I'm the only one that answers it, and I guarantee a reply. Thank you to everyone who's messaged over the New Year's holiday season um, to send their well wishes uh, guys, we love that you listen to this show. Uh, we want you to be happy with the content, and uh, I'm, I'm just glad that so many of you are. Uh, I know that the world is kind of crazy out there, but on behalf of Warlord Games, we hope that you are happy and safe and just having fun out there. Have a good one, guys. Until next time, good night.